the weekly show with David J. Maloney. This week, David talks to Todd Pipes of Deep Blue Something. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is an artist that was behind one of the 90s most quintessential songs. The band's breakaway hit, Breakfast at Tiffany's, was a massive success to the point where you really couldn't go anywhere without hearing it, especially if you were of a certain age. And the members of the band all went on to have fantastic careers inside and outside of the music industry, touring and producing. Here to chat about the history of the band, their song that helped define a decade, and everything else in between is Todd Pipes of Deep Blue Something. Todd, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. So, Todd, where did you guys grow up and what was your, your home life like? I mean, was there a lot of music in your home? Yeah, Toby and I um, grew up mostly in Huntsville, which is north of Houston. Um, all the guys are from different parts of Texas. But yeah, our, our family was very, very musical. Our parents both uh, got through college on vocal scholarships. So we, we refer to them as legit singers, like they really know what they're doing. Um, and so in our house, there was music all the time, whether they were listening to it or just singing, my dad would just sing in the kitchen. Um, and they're both fantastic singers. So lots of classical music, a lot of, uh, singer songwriter stuff. Simon and Garfunkel was, was big in the pipes house. And then, uh, on long car rides, it was just music, just nonstop, you know, and we, for whatever reason, our family, lots of car rides. So there was hours and hours and John Denver played big on those car rides. <laughs> uh, John's from Austin. Clay is from South of Dallas, DeSoto. And uh, Kirk is from a little town in East Texas called Kemp. So, so what's funny is, is our family had those long drives as well to go visit usually grandparents or yes. aunts and uncles or cousins. And, you know, at that time we had a track. Oh, so yeah. you'd not only be singing along and everybody would be singing, but everyone would also know the exact point in the song when it would go quiet. When it would yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember also with eight tracks, it seemed like whenever you got a new car and like an eight track came with the car. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So our parents always held on because that was such a weird mix of things. Like there's a lot of weird things in my memory from the eight track that came with the car. And I don't know why, but. Yeah, we must have worn those things out. Well, the funny thing is, I think I still to this day know all the silent spots like in Billy Joel's 52nd Street and The Stranger. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep, you know, yeah. it's 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 funny. And, and and on Rumors, you know, by Fleetwood Mac, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. all those little spots, and especially yeah. McCartney's first solo album. You know exactly yeah. where the silent spots go. Um, so my brother and I are four years apart. And I, frankly, we didn't always get along when we were younger. I'm curious, how well did you and your brother get along considering you guys started bands like when you were like, like, what, like four or five, like goofy young, right? Yeah, we, we started messing around with stuff pretty young. So there's the, there's a when you're really young, everything's fine. When you kind of get into grade school, suddenly it seems like, well, three years, four years seems really far apart. Yeah. And then when you're back in high school, it doesn't seem so far apart again. And then it just seems to get smaller and smaller. So, yeah, we were goofing around and, and you know, banging pots and pans and starting all kinds of stuff when we were really young. And then, yeah, when he got into high school and the band I was in had kind of fallen apart. 
we decided to start something and we are, we are uh, very experimental and very electronic. <laughs> so, so when we started what would become Deep Blue Something, that was a big departure starting a guitar band. So obviously the music bug hit you guys really early. What's your first music memory when you look back? I mean, is it a family member playing an instrument, a song on the radio, those family trips, or are you, or, or, or you playing something else entirely? There, there was one, there are two very specific things. One, and you'll remember this, uh, at some point, my, my mom had left me in the car to run into the bank or to run in to pay the water bill. Cause they did that back then you'd roll down the windows, yeah. they'd leave the radio on. And I remember hearing light my fire on the radio. The and doors thinking, version or the, or the earlier the version. Yeah. Okay. The, the doors. Yeah. And hearing it and thinking how familiar it sounded because it has that, you know, that mo- leap motif, which is almost Wagnerian in it. And it sounded, I remember thinking, this sounds like something that my parents listened to. And then the verse and thinking, well, this also sounds, but how are they together? And being so astounded by it and trying to explain it to my mom when she got back to the car. I've heard this amazing song. And I was just just transfixed by Light My Fire, which was a fairly new song at the time. You know, I was a very small, like three, four in the back and just sitting in the car. So that, that amazed me. And then again, listening to music. But what really made me want to get into music was the older kids on the school bus. There were all these rumblings and rumors, this band called Kiss. And they, you know, and then the older kids would tell you very hushed tones because, you you know, it was they were all the parents were afraid of Kiss, you know. And, and so I knew of them a full year or so before I heard the music, because God knows I couldn't go and ask for one of their records. I remember making that mistake one day in the record store and my mom turning over to Kiss Alive 2 and looking at that picture and going, never. Um, but I was amazed by that, that people seem to be in, in such awe of this band and thinking, I need to figure out a way that when I grow up, I can join that band. Like I, I had that in my, because I was in second grade at the time. I, I was, I was ace freely for Halloween when I was both 10 and 11, two years of, in a row. Of course. We with all, aluminum foil. You, you made, you'd make the costume yes. with aluminum foil. Aluminum foil uh, over cardboard. Yeah. We had the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was what really made me want to do it, you know? And I I stuck as a fan with them for forever and ever. They've always been kind of, you know, everybody has a lot of people in the generation before had that seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Mine, it was Kiss. And then I think they played on this. uh, They made some really random TV appearance. And my mom called them there thinking that if I saw them, I would be turned off by it. And I was just like, Amazing. Do you remember? Do you remember they 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 did a TV show? They had it was like a movie, and they aired it on TV. It was like a sixty or ninety minute. It was horrible, yes. but as a kid, Kiss we still thought the, it was great. We did. We thought it was great. Yeah, Kiss meets the Phantom. But even at the time, yes. I remember thinking, "Hmm, I don't think this turned out the way they thought it was going yeah. to." <laughs> oh well. So so um, then you know, in the lead up to officially forming the band, what kind of music were you listening to? Because you said something about you know, keyboards or synthesizers. Did you move yeah. into the new wave type of thing? Would it become then like Howard Jones and, and no. Thomas Dolby or, or the no, big no, Pesh mode? Was, or what was it at that point? It was very much uh, Cabaret Voltaire, Front 242, Knights Arab, very edgy. You know, the Front 242 called it electronic body music. 
all, our friends just thought we were absolutely weird because you know it, the songs don't really go anywhere they're just these crazy sounds and stuff and but we we loved that and so our first band that we started that's what we were trying to do and I that's what you guys that, were aiming for yeah very 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 much so and even when when I transferred up to North Texas our idea was that we would start something that was still electronic in some ways because the, the grunge wave hadn't hit yet. There were still plenty of different things around, um, you know, 808 state played really big in our apartment. I remember, you know, Carter, the unstoppable sex machine, lots of those kinds of bands. And even, even like EMF, you've got to remember how big that hit was too. Mm -hmm. That was a little bit more Madchester ish, but that's what we were thinking. And it was really only a matter of practicality that we decided we'd probably it'd be easier to start a guitar band just for playing live purposes. So, so that was what you were aiming for. And, and you know, the nineties was such an interesting time in music with people experimenting and kind of changing music everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we, we had, we had, and by the way, we had, we had EMF on the show, but we, we also had uh, Glenn Phillips from Toad the Wet Sprocket was just on. Um, yeah. Last I, I week. saw part of that. Yeah. I watched part of that just the other day. Yeah. And, and that was another band that really gained popularity in college towns. Mm -hmm. What do you think was in the water in the nineties that germinated so many indie bands in college towns? I mean, colleges have always spawned bands in every decade, like Tom Petty and the heartbreaker came right. right, you know, from up the street in Florida is a good example. But to me, the nineties seemed to really kind of ramp that up. No. Yeah. And, and here's, here's why I think, cause I've thought about that a lot too. If you remember back at that time, it was a really popular thing. You know, what are you doing tonight? I don't know. Let's go out and check out a band, right? E even on Friends, the TV show, you would hear references to this. The movie Singles, that's what they did. That's what you did in the 90s. It, because in the 80s, it was very much, you know, you'd go out to a dance club and do that kind of thing. But in the 90s, it had shifted to, let's just go check out a band. And so everybody kind of had their local favorites. And when the local favorites kind of start becoming better than the bands that are touring through there, bands start getting record deals and stuff. And that's, that's what happened in Dallas. I mean, the music scene here between Denton, Dallas, and Fort Worth, there are hundreds of bands. But, but I think that's what it was. It was just a fashionable, fun thing to do that was different than going to a dance club. And you'd go check out a band. Now, what was special about the music scene in Denton in those days? Um, the musicianship, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, the university of North Texas music school is, is legendary. The, the one o'clock lab band is, is amazing. Um, and so there was a competitiveness among the bands of who knows what they're doing and who doesn't know what they're doing because some, and some bands got up there and it was just endless amounts of solos, a lot of funk stuff and all that kind of thing. And those bands are great. But a lot of times it's musicians playing for other musicians, you know? So, so in that, you would, you would see bands that would be going, okay, well, what are we wanting to do here? Because we can play for other musicians all we want, or we can try to do something. And you would see those bands kind of honing their songwriting a little bit and maybe even not doing solos because, hey, that gets kind of old after the seventh song of, you know... A, 15 minute saxophone solo. 
but it was in the water and your chops better be up, which was really interesting for us switching violently from synths to guitars. We had to learn to play the instrument and now write from that instrument in, right away. So the in, in those early days, did you all ever try to just go up on stage with just the synth and a drum kit and that was it? Or did you? Yeah, it, it wasn't worth it because when we went out to see other bands, it was one band would play, they'd throw their gear off the stage, the next band would throw theirs up, check, check, and they'd start playing. You can't do that with synths. It's just, you know, you're linking all these things together. You, you know, it, we knew instantly. We, I, we didn't even, I don't think we played one show that way. It was, we got to ditch this. How did both of your brothers end up in North Texas together? How did that happen? So Toby and I had both been at Sam Houston. And since I'm older, I graduated from Sam Houston, but Toby wanted to transfer uh, for a different major. They had an, he, he had his eyes set at first on an advertising degree. And so he, he and a friend of his transferred up to North Texas the semester before I was graduating. And so my mom had been pressuring me to go ahead and get my master's degree in English. And so he, he got up there and he was like, there's all these bands. So he called me and said, hey, mom's wanting you to get your master's degree. There's tons of bands. Get up here. We'll start another band. And I was like, cool, because I don't have any idea what kind of job I'm going to get. I've got an English degree. What on? That's the dumbest thing I've ever done. What do you do with an English degree? But so I went ahead, doubled down and got a master's degree in English. But but the whole thing was it prolonged me getting a job and it gave us this opportunity to start them. But that's how we both ended up up there. So um, tell me the story behind the band's first working name, Leper Messiah. Who came up with that? And, and then why did the name change? OK, well, it changed for obvious reasons, but I <laughs> we didn't like I, Leper Messiah. It wasn't going I, over well. I think I'm to blame. We, we were big, both big David Bowie fans. And, and David Bowie has a song called Ziggy Stardust. And in yep. that song, he says, like a leper messiah. Because he also says in it, guys and screwed down hairdos, like some cat, cat in Japan. In Japan, the band had gotten their name. We love Japan as well. And so, and also Bauhaus, which is another one mm -hmm. of our absolute favorite. They had covered Ziggy Stardust. So, so we're like, this is a sign. We will call ourselves leper messiah like and a leper messiah yeah like a leper messiah but what we didn't know was that metallica had a song i think it's on the b side to ride the lightning i'm not, I'm not sure um and much a lot more people at the time were more familiar with that so we played some gigs as leper messiah for a while and people would show up oh are you guys a metallica tribute band and we're like what are you talking mm. about leper messiah man and so we knew, we knew we had to change it. So we thought we were so clever though. We were like, why is there no band called Leper Messiah? It's genius. And even, even before the Metallica thing, everybody was going, it's not genius. It sounds horrible. It's a horrible sounding name. And so we, we changed it. Thank God. So, not so, that deep blue something's any better. But well, how did y'all come up with that name? I mean, it's, it's kind of now considered a quintessential nineties band name, but how did you guys come sure. up with it? Okay, so during the Leper Messiah days, we had this long 15-minute space epic that we used to play. And we, do, we started playing it again recently. And we had the first half of it written. It, it was like this two-parter. 
And so we were going to write this second half. And I, I was like, well, I don't, what can it be about? You give, give me something that can write it. And John just said, it sounds like water. It, you should call it deep blue something. And I was like, deep blue something. He was like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just think of something, but deep blue something. I was like, no, no, no. Deep blue something. That sounds good. Where did you get that? He said, I don't know. You're not understanding. It's like, I do understand. <laughs> deep blue something is, 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 sounds good. And so that was the name of that part of the song. Like deep blue, something else like deep blue. Yeah, he come wanted up with me to another word besides come up something. with another. Yeah. And I was like, no, I like that, that weird vagueness, deep blue something. It sounds cool. Or at least, I don't know. And so when we were desperate for a band name, we figured, well, that's, that's as good and bad as anything else. You know, when you really think about it, The Cure, not a great name. Love them. Even any band, every band name, if you overanalyze it, is kind of stupid. So ours is as stupid as anybody else's. So walk us through the creation of your first album, 11th Song. What memory sticks out to you the most from you guys creating that album? We recorded it over the span of, recorded it and mixed it in the span of like three days. Um, we, we did it as a three-piece, too. Um, because it was looking like for a little bit that it wasn't going to happen. Even trying to get $500 together, it was like, that was, because this is back when we were having to buy one guitar string at a time, you know. And so it was looking like it wasn't going to happen. And then all of a sudden it was, but we lost a guitar player along the way in that. And so we recorded it as a three piece. So I paid, I played you know, my normal thing, playing the bass and singing. <clears throat> and then I also played some of the, you know, rhythm guitar parts. But so that's a three piece. And then Lee Davila, who was in the band for a little while, had come in. He did a couple of backing vocals. And then he, he kind of joined the band right after that, right after it was finished. But yeah, just uh, we recorded it with this guy named Eric Delagard, who's still making records. We, it, we did it in his apartment. You know, it, it was it was super fun. It was it was cool to us because we had only ever made recordings on, you know, on our four track. So that so to us, that was that was really cool. Um, but yeah, just really fast. One take playing almost all live, you know, and then just overdubbing the parts for the guy that wasn't there. And yeah, it was fun. So in, in a providential stroke of fate, Breakfast at Tiffany's was actually on that first album. And, and you, you might be tired of telling the story, but I'd love to hear what that song's journey was like initially. I, I liked the phrase Breakfast at Tiffany's. I, I hadn't seen the movie in forever, like since I was a little kid, probably, and maybe only part of that at the time. But I had somehow or other heard, heard the phrase again, maybe in reference to the Capote book. And I just thought that, that sounds really cool. You know, I should, I, I got to figure out how to work that into a song. Cause I think if, if I could figure out how to, but it's not a, it's a clumsy thing to say in a way, breakfast at Tiffany's and then put that rhythmically into a song. And so I couldn't think about it. Couldn't figure out how to do it. It just walked around in my head for like a year probably. And then I worked at the university library and <clears throat> I had a spare 15 minutes before I was supposed to be there. And I sat down on the couch and I turned on the TV and Roman Holiday, a different Audrey Hepburn movie, was on. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I, I really should mess with that Brexit Tiffany's idea. So I picked up the guitar and I just kind of just said out loud. And I said, 
what about breakfast at Tiffany's? And I was like, what about, okay, I'll have one character talking to another character. So I said, what about, and so very quickly it turned into this breakup song that this idea that these two people had dated each other and it was a colossal waste of time, except for this one thing. They agreed that they kind of liked Breakfast. this movie. They didn't love it. They just kind of like, and then that was like, okay, well then I guess that that's that, right? So the other thing that I think was key to the writing of the song was I also was really curious if you could write a, a successful popular song that didn't rhyme and didn't repeat. And I was really curious because I you know, remember I was in graduate school. I was getting an MFA in writing. I was reading lots of Baudelaire and Rambo and, and those, a, a lot of those guys, which, you know, all of Rambo's stuff doesn't rhyme. This kind of idea of prose poetry and stuff. Can you, can you do that? Could you suspend a narrative in a song, have it be popular and for no one to realize that it doesn't rhyme? or repeat, you know, it doesn't say breakfast at Tiffany's, breakfast at Tiffany's, breakfast. it doesn't do that. It just says it once each chorus, you know? And so I figured, I, I was like, well, now I've worked breakfast at Tiffany's in, maybe that will be strong enough to hide the fact that the rest of the song doesn't rhyme. And so now I've got this task. Well, and it's still got that hook. I mean, you, you it, to this day, even to this day, if somebody plays that song in a pub, you know, it's, everybody's singing it like sweet carol like you know what i mean it's yeah. like like american pie it's like yeah everybody somehow is... or other, it, it carries it yeah so 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 my goal that i'd set out worked and, and i could tell the first time we played it hey this works and nope and i mean years went by before anyone mentioned or noticed or questioned hey man this song doesn't rhyme like at all like it's not, nothing. And it was actually a guy in another band in England. And they had just, he was kind of reviewing the song hits of the week or something. He was like, man, I don't know about this song. It doesn't rhyme. And he's the only person that ever noticed. I thought that people were going to be like, Hey, this guy's clever here. Cause he has hidden a whole bunch and nobody ever knows. So, oh, well. Now, if I recall correctly, that song wasn't really one that stuck out for you guys at first. I think you said before it was like number four and number five on your live set list. Not a prime song, right? It was just an, it was just another new song, you know? Um, yeah, because we, we were <clears throat> we were all we had been together for a little while. We were already selling out places. This in, in our minds at the time, this was just another song hey, it's fun to play. Well, people seem to like it. We'll put it in the set, you know, but it wasn't our, it wasn't our closing number, you know? It, yeah. But people did from the very first night we played it, I could tell, you know, oh, okay, people like that one. We'll keep it in there because we would just throw away songs. If we, if, if they weren't working through the set, cause, and I kind of, uh, I look back on that and wish we had recorded things more because there are some songs that just faded into nothing, you know? So after the initial release of the first album, did you guys ever second guess things? I mean, I know for myself, I make a, a lot of commercials. And sometimes if I don't get a lot of quick positive feedback, I fear I may have missed the mark. But often I just have to give them time. You guys kind of had that slow growing burn, no? Like, I mean, it, it, it kind of sure. ramped up. Yeah, definitely. Because when we had gone on to make the home album, 
we, we liked what we had done and everything. And our manager had said, you know, your people that like you have heard this other stuff, but I think maybe you could do a better job of breakfast at Tiffany's. You, you need to re-record that probably. And, and I was like, you know, I've been thinking about the same thing. It, we, we just, it, that was basically like a glorified demo. This is a little bit more real. Let's do that. Well, plus you guys probably already had some inkling from your live shows that the song may have had some legs, no? Yes. It, and we kept thinking too, but, but mention, you know, what, going back to what you were saying before about it being a slow burn, by the time we got a record deal, in, in my head, we were done. It wasn't going to happen, you know. Um, even we had, we had sold tons of records as an indie. Uh, our manager had gone around to all the labels and they were like, yeah, it's great. It, I don't think it's going to work. You know, we got rejected by everybody. Um, and so again, in my mind, it was like, well, we had a great run. It's been interesting, but it's probably going to be over in the next few months. Now, was that the feeling when you guys were doing home? Cause I mean, home really kind of sealed the deal and stamped you guys into the, into nineties music history, I guess, walk us through the creation of that album a little bit. And what was the feeling like in the studio? Well, so we had made the 11th song, we played it, you know, for a year and then it was just time. Well, we, we made that record. Let's go make another one. So we got a we we got a, a club owner to co-sign a loan for us for five thousand dollars because he knew well if we play one show he'll if we don't pay him back he'll just make us play a show and he'll keep the money so yeah just no keep, work it off yeah so we made the record for twenty five hundred dollars paid back the loan too quickly ruined my credit for a while but <laughs> but we just went in and made it was just another indie record that we made did it the exact same way, did it fairly quickly. And then um, didn't really like the way the mix was. So we got Dave Costell to remix it. And then we added Brexit Tiffany's. And that's when the ripple started a little bit, you know, but, but again, even still, it was just another local release it was nothing. And it wasn't until it, it found its way onto local radio that we really started selling. And then all those record companies came back around and wanted to sign us, but they still didn't get it. They only were signing us because we were selling so many. We were outselling everybody else, you know, national records in Dallas. So that's why they signed us. And this is kind of where the story kind of really takes off in my mind. So Breakfast mm -hmm. at Tiffany's gets picked up, I think, on one of the biggest radio stations in the area, mm -hmm. as, as I recall. And then if I'm correct, it all kind of started with people hearing the song, uh, uh, you know, kind of in the background during some local radio segments. No. Yeah. Well, so there's a club in town called Trees. And this goes back to what we were saying before. People went out to clubs. And so different clubs would advertise on the radio. This is who's playing this weekend. And we were a big draw. So they were advertising, you know, Saturday night, Deep Blue something. And then as they were saying it, they played a tiny bit of Brexit Tiffany's. And people just start calling the station. What the heck is that? What is that song that's on the trees at? And so they called our manager and said, hey man, we're adding the song. Like people won't stop beating us to death about that trees ad. And we didn't even know what they were talking about. Um, and so they started playing. This was the edge. And then they officially added it. And then this other even bigger station, Q102, added it. 
And when that combination happened, we really started moving some units. And then other stations kind of around started picking it up as well. And there was a point in there that we actually debated whether we should even sign with a major because it was happening. It's just, it's really risky because we had, you know, no capital to push it or anything. Yeah. And you got to deal with promotion and things. And yeah, that's and where making, it really kicks You had in. to make videos at the time because yeah. TV still played videos. Yep. Um, and and how, how surprised were you guys that it was Breakfast at Tiffany's that was the one that was just exploding in popularity? Or once you redid it, did you feel like it was going to have those legs? Uh, didn't, we didn't know for sure, but we did know one thing. Uh, because a very similar thing had happened out in Lubbock. We had gone to, the, there's a Lubbock's college town out in West Texas, Texas Tech is there. And we had never played, played Lubbock before. And we were counting on our hands. Well, so we know so-and-so goes here and she's going to bring two people. And then I think she knows this other guy. We were like, there'll be five or six people there. It's going to be fine. You know, we'll just do our best. And maybe, maybe there'll be a couple of other people. And we pull up in in Lubbock. And this was a full year before anything happened in Dallas. This was a whole year before. And we're like, oh man, there's lots of people around. That, that radio station's doing like a remote broadcast. Maybe some of these people will hear us sound checking. Maybe we can get 10 or 15 people there. It's going to, it'll be, this is going to be great. Well, what we didn't know was that this college radio station, KXT, for the same reason, because the club was advertising a show of this unknown band and they wanted five or six people to be there, had played a snippet. Some kid at the college station goes, hey, that's pretty cool. They start playing it. All of those people that were out on the street were waiting to get into our show. And, and we were just dumbfounded our first time. And it was slam packed. It, people were passing out. It was so hot in there. Oh, geez. And that's when we realized oh, that's the power of a radio station. These people don't know us. They heard us on this tiny college station and it's working like a son of a gun. So we had this really special relationship out in Lubbock, Texas, for, because they were ahead of the curve by a whole year. So we knew what could happen if it could just find its way. Why do you think people took to the song like they did? Was it that hook, that ability, that sing-along hook? Or was there, or when people talk to you about the song, is it because maybe they have some, uh, uh, you know, unintended association with it in some way, even though you didn't write it from personal yeah. experience? Yeah, there's definitely some weird personal associations. I'll tell you about that in a second. <laughs> I, I, I've tried to kind of figure it out because I don't, I mean, I like it. It's just fine. It's awesome. But I don't really. It's only our of, biggest song. I like it. But. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't quite understand it from an analytical point of view. Yeah. I think part of it is that the beat and the singing are off time. And I said, you know what I'm saying? So, and that's what makes people want to jump up and down because the, it's always, you're jumping up on the upbeat. And I said, what about you know, and it mm -hmm. somehow or other that translates. But for it being a breakup song, so many people have said, oh, that's our song. You know, they've told me all kinds of interesting first experiences associated with that song. And I'm like, it's a breakup song. Like, yeah. that, that doesn't make sense. But sometimes people just associate it with, you know, I don't know, their experiences at being on the radio and at being loud. People always tell me how 
man, I play that song so loud. I don't know. It's just it's part of their soundtrack, I guess. From there, the song skyrockets you guys into U.S. and international charts. How did you guys first find out your song was charting across the globe? Well, so it was it wasn't a fast process, even in the United States. It was it was city by city. We would have to go to the cities and play in the lobby of the radio station and beg them to add it because there'd always be the program director going, guys, I love the song. I just don't think it fits our format or it doesn't fit the other songs we're playing because we were not grunge, but we also weren't like pop pop. We were in this weird nether region kind of thing. Yeah, but at the same time, you had what? Matchbox 20, Train, Conic, Toad. Well, Toad the Wet Sprocket was a little ahead of us. And that was something, if we had a station that played them, that was cool. Matchbox 20 was later. Train was later. All those bands were kind of after. So you were Because even still, even... Because that was 96, right? Was that 96? Yeah. I thought so. It was, we didn't quite fit with the Dave Matthews crowd. No. And we didn't really fit with the Hootie and the Blowfish crowd. Because everybody kept thinking that we were, I don't know, the rumor was that we were Scottish. And we were like, we are are as Texas as you can be. Um, So (laughs) the long and short of it is the United States was a slow process which probably in the end really benefited us. So then we go and then it's something's happening in Austria. We're, we're gonna fly you to Austria, you're gonna do some promotion and then we're gonna go to Germany and see if we can get anything going. So it was Austria and then it was fighting through Germany. Germany took off fairly quickly and then we had to go to Sweden and then Norway and then all, you, you know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. and then it was, okay, Europe's going well, something's wrong with England we're sending you to China. So then we go to, we do a tour in China and the, in Malaysia and in the far East. And so that's going crazy. And then we went back to Europe to kind of support some more. And then it was, we're, we got a meeting with England. Something's wrong. Is it true? Your British fans were having to buy imported copies of your album and the song the, for a while. Yes. So yeah. we sit down with, with the British label and this was literally the phrase congratulations on your success in the rest of the world. Jeez. We just don't think it's going to work here. The British charts are dominated by British bands. It's Britpop. We just don't think it's going to work. Okay. And I should have told me you were Scottish. (laughs) Don't you know? And, And so my response was, look, no one is expecting, like, we, no one knows for sure. We're not going to be mad if it somehow doesn't work. It's, it's okay. You know, we thought that they were panicked because it had been so successful and maybe it wasn't going to be. And they're like, no, we're not going to release this. And, and we're going, you just said it's worked in the rest of the world. Like we're number two in Iceland right now in Israel. And you think it's not going to work to the point that you don't want to bother releasing this. And then they're like, yeah. And then it was, that meeting was over and we flew back to Sweden to pick up our tour, just confused as we could possibly be. And then a couple of weeks go by and we get a call. They're gonna put the record out. The kids have been buying import CDs from Germany. It's forcing their hand, they're gonna have to release it. And so they finally released it half-heartedly, which is why it didn't debut at number one, it debuted at three and then went three, two, one. Yeah. And so that's what, that's the kind of mentality we were up against. You know? I mean, the band 
then ended up having this popularity in the UK. Mm-hmm. And did you guys then get to go after that and experience that popularity firsthand? Or since you had already been to that part of the world? I mean, in other words, did you then go back overseas to, to England to experience it firsthand or no? No, that was that was really the strangest thing. So we go number one. We'd been on top of the pops like five times. But because of the way the schedule was, our, the American label was like, you, you've been gone for two years. You got to come home and start working on another record. So we went number one in the UK. We only played there three times total. And two of which were before the record came out. <clears throat> and then we played one night the night that the record was released. That's it. So we never did this triumphant tour of mm. this country. It was so, but in the same way, like, you know, we, we to this day, for whatever reason, we've never played Australia. And it's one, been one of our biggest countries this whole time. We've never been there. So in, in those days, the band was doing these tours and to thousands of fans across the globe, what touring memory sticks out the most? I mean, was there a particular crowd or a fan encounter, something backstage or something else entirely? Two, two of the wildest things were like part of our first shows there. We showed up in, in Vienna and we were supposed to do it. It was us and, and Santana at this horse race track in, in Vienna. And our gear was stuck in customs in, in England. And so like we're supposed to be on in an hour. It's just, it's Sunday evening and they're having to like beg shop owners to open up a store so that we can rent instruments. You know, so we finally get all this stuff to, to be able to play. And then we get this word, Santana wants to play before you. Like, that's weird, but okay, it's their show. And we didn't know there, there was this massive storm coming in. And I guess Carlos had had a vision. <laughs> so they play, they leave, our borrowed gear is up on stage. We start playing and I mean, the bottom drops out, ruins all of the gear. The PA is swinging, it's like pandemonium. We go backstage, the label has to buy all this gear and it's like, well, it's just what happens you need to go to Amsterdam because that's where your gig is tomorrow. So we fly to Amsterdam and our gear is supposed to meet us there. But guess where our gear goes? Our gear goes to Vienna. So we're now in Amsterdam with the same problem. But it's a festival. We're first on the bill, like the very first band on this bill. And we think, dude, there'll be a couple of thousand people maybe. Let's just, so we do the same thing. We figure out, we get borrowed instruments. We walk out there. It is packed. Like it is the, it is the biggest crowd I have ever seen in my life. They estimate between 200 and 400,000 people. So it's Woodstock. Oh, dude. It is. And they are there because they have heard us and they want to see these dudes from Texas. And we're up there with instruments that barely work. My Toby's playing a pink Stratocaster that he can hardly <laughs> keep in tune. It, it was Kate, but we were so incensed and angry about the gear situation that it was just head down just hammering through this set and the crowd thought it was the greatest thing they had ever seen the rain story is funny because it it reminds me i actually went to woodstock 94 and with all the mud with all the mud and um and and the funny thing is is i'm from woodstock i went to woodstock elementary school so when everybody was sleeping in the mud at night we just went back and i slept on my mom's sofa Nice. And, but, but the Rollins band 
-hmm. they got hit by a thunderstorm in the middle of it and they just stayed out and he, right. they and henry just kept getting harder and as it rained harder he played harder it was oh. almost like that prince super bowl rain right you know situation yeah. but yeah I and mean, the whole time you're thinking somebody's getting electrocuted here <laughs> yeah because that's the thing so we weren't using because we were on bar we weren't using any wireless units mm -hmm. so we were completely tethered to everything and that's when things get really dicey yeah so in those first two days in Europe, it was just, it was chaos. But th th those are the ones that stand out in my mind, just because you just find a way to make it happen, you know? And it's, that's part, that part of the touring life is fun. The other parts are not so fun. Well, I like asking musicians this question. What song, whether it be yours or someone else's, as a, whether it be a cover, whatever, gives you the absolute most joy to either play or listen to? Um, as far as playing live, we, we have a song called Daybreak and a Candle End, and it's very difficult to play. And, and so as far as one of our songs, that's the one I like the most. It's very, it's very much, it shows kind of our Rush influence a lot. But as far as listening, the one that I'm just in awe of is a song by uh, Alphaville called Forever Young. Mm -hmm. And it, it's forever been in tons young. of the, I want to be forever young. I, I think that there's never been enough said about how perfect that song is and how poignant and how amazing and how it captures kind of the essence of, of the 80s Cold War paranoia and fear. Like every time I hear it, I'm just like, that song is astounding, right? That's, that's one of those ones. I just heard that the other day and I thought, yep, this one holds for sure. A, a bit of personal band trivia. What did you guys consider to be your hometown? Was it Denton or somewhere else? Denton, yeah. Yes, because we that that's where we formed. That's where we all met each other. You know, we we still say that we're a Denton band. And I love the fact that you've all said before the band never broke up. You guys just stopped playing. Yep. Um, I actually love the thought behind that. What led to that scenario for the band? And and are you guys? Doing, I know you, you said something earlier that made me think that maybe there's something on the horizon now. Yeah, we, uh, it, it, what really happened was we just started having kids. That was, that was for me, you know, when, when my son was born, I just, your perspective changes. And we had done everything that we had ever set out to do. And there were issues with the record companies and music had changed. And we're like, well, we're not Christina Aguilera and we're not Limp Biscuit maybe our time has kind of come. We don't hate each other. We haven't, you know, blown through the money on Ferraris and cocaine. <laughs> you know, let's maybe let this kind of be what it is. And so it just kind of stopped. It, it, every once in a while, we would go out and play a gig or something. But around 2018, we did an EP and we really had fun with that. And since then, every year, six months or so, we've just been putting out a song here and there. We actually just had one come out last Friday. And we've just kind of just been playing shows just for fun. And so it's very much like back to those indie days. We've got no responsibility. We don't answer to anybody. We just do exactly what we want to do. And that keeps it fun. Well, Todd, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Todd Pipes. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hey.